In case of a nuclear attack, the protection of records is essential. If this country is to carry on its economy... Western Fringe, a podcast about Colorado's weird history. I'm your host, Heidi Beetle, and this week we're in Leadville, Colorado. Just north of Leadville is Vail, one of Colorado's most popular ski destinations. Before it became a tourist destination, the region was owned by the U.S. government. The U.S. Army built Camp Hale in 1942 to train soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division in Alpine warfare. The soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division would go on to fight in Italy's Apennine Mountains during World War II. Most people, if they know anything about Camp Hale at all, associate it with the 10th Mountain Division. There is a historical marker on the Tennessee Pass commemorating the unit and the soldiers lost during World War II. What is less commonly known is that Camp Hale was also home to the 620th Engineer General Service Company and about 400 German prisoners of war, members of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps. Today's episode is about the latter two, and a U.S. Army soldier who deserted from Camp Hale and took two German POWs with him, with wild plans of escaping to Germany through South America, attending German sabotage school, and then returning to the U.S. to wage a Nazi guerrilla war against America. Pretty much all the research for today's episode came from Bill Son's book, Something Like Treason. I spoke to Son recently for a story I wrote about the book, um, and I'll be including some of our interview in this episode. Um, there are some issues with the audio. I'm not the most technically adept podcaster, sorry. Uh, so instead of just doing the whole interview, I will break it up throughout the episode and kind of paraphrase my question before using Mr. Son's audio. Um, before we get into this whole story, I want to offer two editorial disclosures here to kind of preface things. Um, I wanted to do this episode on Camp Hale, uh, not just because it's like an interesting um, kind of weird piece of Colorado history, but also because it kind of dovetails nicely with some of my own personal lived experiences in a way that, you know, might color some of my commentary here. So, um, disclosure number one, I myself am a veteran of the U.S. Army. Uh, I don't mention this in like a kind of like brag or anything. Um, you know, it's not one of those things that I'm super proud of these days at this point in my life. But, you know, as an elder millennial, um, and I hate that term, but, um, you know, I experienced 9-11 as a senior in high school in Virginia it was a big deal. Um, I didn't join the military like right out of high school. I tried a semester of college and failed miserably. Uh, and then I signed up for the army. Um, I joined as an infantry soldier in 2003 and I was in basic training when we invaded Iraq and I deployed to Iraq three times before I got out of the service in 2011. I'm also a trans woman, which, you know, looking back definitely played a role in my decision to join. Uh, you know, they said it would make a man out of me. Um, it did not. But 
Um, you know, I served during Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the infantry during the height of the war on terror. Um, overall, you know, it's a horrible experience. I would not recommend that anyone join the military for any reason. Um, and again, you know, I'm not super proud of it, but it definitely gives me some perspective on the events that kind of took place at Camp Hale, you know, in the 1940s. Disclosure number two. I fucking hate Nazis. Uh, after I got out of the military, I transitioned. And like a lot of trans people, that experience of going from white cis dude to trans woman was a rough one. It opened my eyes to a lot of things that I had been oblivious to in my prior life. Um, and of course, I found myself on the receiving end of, you know, discrimination and bigotry. As a result, I became something of an activist, um, particularly with a certain black-clad, far-left street militia. Um, and, you know, while I took part in my share of protests, mostly what I did was research and writing. Um, and honestly, I mean, that's the primary function of Antifa anyway, right? At least, you know, as it existed in the U.S. during the Trump administration. Um, but I spent a lot of time researching members of groups like the Proud Boys, the Traditionalist Worker Party, and Identity Europa, these kind of like modern, um, you know, far-right or neo-Nazi groups. Most of what I did was what people call today like OSINT or like open source intelligence, um, but basically combing social media, creeping on Facebook, joining various groups and Discord servers, trying to put names to faces. As a result, I spent a lot of time reading and analyzing, you know, modern Nazi propaganda, listening to podcasts from dudes like Patrick Casey and Nick Fuentes, and just generally existing in this kind of like gross Nazi ecosystem. Um, you know, I learned a lot about the members of these groups, their interests, their social lives or lack thereof, um, just all the weird minutiae of someone's life and personality that you can kind of glean from their social media presence. Um, and then, of course, you know, I dox them. Um, I'm not involved in any of that stuff anymore. I stay out of activism and, you know, I focus on journalism and, you know, history and try to keep a low profile. Um, but I don't have any regrets. Nazis, fascists, and their enablers are despicable and should be called out for what they are and opposed at every opportunity. It is my editorial position that Nazis can and should eat shit and die. With all that being said... Welcome to episode six of Western Fringe, To the Top, part one, The Fast and the Furious. Left a port out of New York 
British rain Touring up down in London town And they ship back out again Learning about World War II in school, you kind of get the impression that it was this very black and white, good versus evil conflict. After Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, America came together as a nation to defeat the Axis powers and once again make the world safe for democracy. That is, of course, not really what happened. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Program to Chill podcast, and I highly recommend everything they put out. But, um, you know, for this kind of episode where I'm talking about this stuff at Camp Hale and things going on in the U.S. during World War II, um, I would really recommend you check out um, their Who Financed Hitler episode, Detroit Kraut Rock City. And their Spyclopedia number one episode, FBI Foot Guys, um, those are great companion episodes for Son's book, Something Like Treason. And having listened to those episodes first definitely added a lot of context to the books and kind of, you know, filled in some of my own gaps about World War II history. The reality is that a significant number of Americans were big fans of the Nazis. Just like today, the Nazis of the 1930s hid their explicitly racist, genocidal, fascist beliefs under the veneer of conservative politics. American Nazis in the 1930s all hated FDR and communism and labor unions and felt the U.S. should stay out of World War II. In the 1930s, German Nazis and their agents began forming Nazi organizations in the United States. Um, the most successful, I think, was probably the German-American Bund, uh, which formed in 1936 and is famous for their 1939 event at Madison Square Garden, where 20,000 Americans showed up for this pro-America rally, sporting, you know, swastikas in addition to American flags. Um, but you also had groups like the Silver Shirts or the Silver Legion of America, which was modeled after Mussolini's black shirts, as well as the Christian Front, you know, a kind of um, religious fascist organization. Um, these groups were similar in a lot of ways to modern groups like Identity Europa or Patriot Front, and by all accounts, were made up of the same kinds of insufferable assholes. The widespread popularity of pro-Nazi organizations during this time led novelist Sinclair Lewis to write It Can't Happen Here, a novel about the rise of a fascist dictator in America, loosely based on figures like Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, and events like The Business Plot of 1933. After the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the U.S. was officially at war with Japan, Italy, and Germany, and the U.S. did a couple of different things. One of the things they did was to round up every person of Japanese heritage they could find and force them into internment camps, one of which, Camp Amachi, was located here in Colorado. The other was to round up any and every able-bodied man they could find and get him into a uniform. The problem, of course, is that a bunch of members and former members of these fascist organizations, the German-American Bund and others, got drafted along with everyone else. You can see how it might be problematic to have Nazis serving in the U.S. military when it's currently at war with Nazis, right? Can we trust these guys who were sig-heiling George Washington in 1939 to take part in the invasion of Europe? 
You know, this might seem wild today, given how federal law enforcement treats the threat of right-wing extremism now, but during the 30s and 40s, the FBI, which at the time was serving both a federal law enforcement capacity, but also like a quasi-intelligence capacity in the days before the Office of Strategic Service, uh, the OSS, which would turn into the CIA, um, the FBI was keeping a close eye on these Nazi groups in America. Not only was J. Edgar Hoover keeping track of these people, but uh, token efforts were made to dismantle some of these organizations, particularly the Christian Front, uh, which was virulently anti-Semitic. The government began investigating the Christian Front in 1939 and then arrested 17 members in 1940 for a conspiracy to overthrow the government and steal weapons and ammunition. Uh, Charles Coughlin, the founder of the Christian Front, responded to the arrests with a statement of support calling the front pro-American, pro-Christian, anti-communist, and anti-Nazi. The jurors didn't end up convicting any of the 17 Christian front uh, members, and the government eventually dropped the charges. And this would foreshadow later attempts by the Roosevelt administration to deal with these Nazi groups in the U.S. In 1944, there was the Great Sedition Trial, um, in which 30 individuals from various groups, including the German-American Bund and the KKK, uh, were charged with sedition. Uh, This trial was criticized for being politically motivated and having kind of a flimsy legal basis, and it ultimately ended in a mistrial. Big uh, January 6th vibes, right? Here is uh, Mr. Son discussing the U.S. intelligence apparatus at the time and Hoover's role in identifying subversive and disloyal Americans. Uh, You know, at the time... um J. Edgar Hoover was um, campaigning to become um, pretty much head of all intelligence, foreign and domestic, you know. And he was in a he was in a battle with uh, uh, the military for this, and uh, with uh, the OSS, which was sort of the predecessor organization of the CIA, and um, uh, and. Hoover had, uh, from day one in like, well, I can't remember, 1917, 1918 or something when he first joined the government, uh, had been keeping information on note cards. Uh, it'd been the only one. And so consequently, he had this huge, you know, go ahead uh, 20 years and he had this huge stockpile of, of information and files and all. And then in a meeting with Roosevelt, Roosevelt said something along the lines, this before the war, before we were attacked, I should say, um, Roosevelt uh, said something that Hoover took as, well, go ahead and uh, I want to know every resident alien in the country. Uh, I'm not sure he actually said that, but Hoover heard that. And he began uh, 1938, I think, uh, going after anybody with uh, with an Asian or German or Italian name uh, and the like. So that when in 1942, um, oh, and I should add, uh, you know, went after uh, gay people as well. Uh, you know, I mean, just yeah. whoever he <laughs> whoever he set his sight on. Sights on. Um, so uh, in 1942, when the military 
thought, oh my gosh, we're we're inducting every warm body. Um, uh, you know, and there's probably some disreputable characters in here. Um, they had the information basically um, to find these guys all in basic training at the time. Most of them just about ready to ship out, um, but. Um, they had it ready, and actually, you know, by by the evening of December seventh, um, uh, the FBI had uh, detained some three thousand uh, resident aliens. Um, I mean, it's just hours after after Pearl Harbor, they moved. They were ready. This illustrates the problems with Hoover's approach. He cast a wide net, based much of his suspicion on factors like race, country of birth, and immigration status. While the FBI did flag members of fascist organizations who ended up in the army after Pearl Harbor, uh, they also flagged anyone who happened to be German or Italian, or who had traveled to Germany or Italy, or who had had any kind of connection with foreign nationals abroad. And it must be noted that a lot of the guys who were sent to units like the 620th um, Engineer Service Company, um, even some of the ones who were um, members of the German-American Bund and other fascist organizations were, at least initially after being drafted, kind of committed to fighting for the Allies in the United States. Um, these individuals who Hoover and the FBI labeled subversive, disloyal, and unfit for combat service overseas were transferred out of combat units after basic training and sent to special engineer service units where they were given menial tasks and manual labor during the duration of the war. They weren't allowed to handle firearms, so they basically just like mowed grass, painted barracks, cleaned latrines, dig ditches, were loaned out for farm labor, just any kind of nasty, unpleasant, difficult job you could imagine was assigned to these units that consisted of Nazi sympathizers and soldiers of German or Italian descent. The leadership of these units, you know, the officers and the NCOs or sergeants, um, were not subversives of any kind, but were individuals who were not deemed particularly competent. Um, so the guys with like the low marks on their evaluation reports were basically assigned to babysit the Nazis. And as you can imagine, they treated them like crap. Uh, lots of verbal abuse, sometimes physical abuse, and the kind of like petty bullying make your life as miserable as possible because I can behavior that the military has a reputation for. As a veteran, you know, I kind of recognize this behavior. The army doesn't do this sort of thing at this scale anymore, but they definitely have ways of getting rid of problem soldiers, stuffing them in the headquarters platoons or like the battalion S3 where they can't really get into trouble or mess anything up. Um, the ash and trash is what we called them. Um, but during World War II, these engineer service units were kind of like that, but on steroids. Never talk about those first days Lots of friends left behind But I made it all the way across France And I fought at the Maginot Line Rode a tank into Belgium Like them better than the French 
Like my daddy 30 years before Then my time in the trench Lots of days there's no water But the liquor kept me warm Sellers were stuck to their ceilings with booze So I carried a bottle with my gun Camp Hale was home to the 620th Engineer General Service Company. While the 10th Mountain Division was training for Alpine combat in Europe, the 620th ran a sawmill at the camp, among other jobs, and they weren't even allowed to wear like normal uniforms. They wore like blue coveralls, almost identical to the POW uniforms, except the soldiers of the 620th hat didn't have the PW on the back. There were reports that 10th Mountain soldiers would, like, beat up members of the 620th. Um, You know, they were, by all accounts, treated like second-class citizens and criminals, despite the fact that none of them had actually been convicted of a crime or sentenced to any kind of, like, non-judicial punishment or anything. They were just on the army shit list, basically. One of those soldiers, the main character in this saga, was Private First Class Dale Maple. And this is from his entry in the Colorado Encyclopedia. Born in San Diego, California on September 10th, 1920, Dale H. Maple became a shy, frail, and nervous boy who walked with an awkward slouch. He was an only child, asocial, and humorless. Maple seemed to care especially for his piano, memorizing long and difficult passages of Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, Schubert, Grieg, Schumann, Tchaikovsky, Bartok, Debussy, and Rachmaninoff. He graduated first out of a class of nearly 600 students at San Diego High School. Scholarly and unpopular, Maple spent some of his time fantasizing that he traveled extensively in Germany, and those who knew him said it was difficult to determine when he was telling the truth. Because of his academic record, he won a scholarship to Harvard, where he breezed through his courses. He did not mix well, but eventually took up with a group of boys who played bridge five nights a week. He occasionally dated a young woman from Wellesley, and attended one costume party dressed as Adolf Hitler. Although his mother wanted him to be a diplomat, Maple changed his major from history to chemistry in his sophomore year, then switched again, this time to comparative philology, with an emphasis on German. He was always attracted to languages, even though he was a poor speller. A professor later described Maple as a brilliant language student who favored obscure languages such as Old Danish, Akkadian, and Maltese. In addition to Latin, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Polish, Babylonian, Sanskrit, Assyrian, German, and many others. For enjoyment, he read Babylonian cuneiform. In 1938, Maple became partial towards the teachings of Hitler, at one point saying that the worst dictatorship is better than the best democracy. That led to his dismissal from Harvard's Reserve Officer Training Corps curriculum. Upon entering his senior year in 1940, he intensified his studies of the German language, culture, and literature, and, as he had done in high school, continued to lie about traveling through Germany. 
Following his graduation in 1941, Maple wanted to visit Germany, but he was refused a passport because the State Department knew of his political sympathies. He visited his father in California, where he applied for work in an aircraft plant, but was rejected. On December 7, 1941, Maple called the German embassy in Washington. He wanted to let the embassy know that if the United States and Germany went to war, and if the German diplomatic staff returned to the Reich, he wanted to go along. He was informed that his timing was inauspicious as the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor that day and the conversation ended. Instead, Maple entered Harvard's graduate program in comparative philology. Upon learning that a college friend had died at Pearl Harbor, Maple applied for a naval commission but was rejected due to a long standing ear problem. On February 27, 1942, he enlisted in the Army and was placed in cryptography and radio operator school, even though military intelligence was aware of his political leanings. He was an excellent soldier and became an instructor, but his superiors notified him that they were aware of his contact with the German embassy. Maple was assigned to the 620th Engineer General Service Company, which was composed of soldiers, some of them recent German immigrants who were unsympathetic to America's involvement in the war. The 620th busied itself with tasks of a non-sensitive nature, including making camouflage nets, digging ditches, and sawing wood. After several stops at other military installations, the 620th was stationed high in the Colorado Rockies at Camp Hale near Leadville. The camp's mission was to train 10,000 mountain and ski troops, as well as their support personnel. Also at Camp Hale was a group of some 200 German prisoners of war sent there from Trinidad, Colorado for a work program. They were billeted behind a barbed wire fence, and although fraternization between soldiers and prisoners was forbidden at Camp Hale, as it was elsewhere, men of the 620th quickly formed a bond with the German POWs. One of the things that was kind of interesting about this whole story is um, the fact that like the pre the POWs were kept at Camp Hale, um, and here is uh, Mr. Son kind of talking about uh, the POW situation there at Camp Hale. Uh, we are one of the things that surprised me about what went on at Camp Hale was uh, the German POWs there, and um, uh, you know they were—I uh, think there were three hundred of them or so uh, out of the Africa Corps—and um, and it turns out that there are well over six hundred of these camps, uh, main camps and, and branch camps around the country, and um, yeah, and really. Senators and governors were begging to get these guys because we didn't have any we didn't have any workers left. Uh, you know there was no way to there was no way to uh, move agriculture along uh, because everybody was at war. So um, you know they brought basically what happened is is that you know as the tide of war changed, uh, uh, you know. We started, uh, we being the Allies, uh, started capturing whole armies um, at a time and had nowhere to put them. And in the meantime, um, you know, we had uh, ships going across the Atlantic, uh, you know, bringing supplies and what and, and men, etc. Uh, but they were coming back empty. So the thought was, is, well, let, you know, since the, we need the labor, um, let's uh, let's fill the uh, the deadhead trip, um, trips back home with uh, the POWs. 
And um, so that's how they got here. And uh, they were all over. They were all over the place. They were, I think Colorado had a Nine of them, if I'm not mistaken. One of the things that struck me about Maple and the other fascist sympathizers in the 620th was how much they reminded me of the dipshits I had studied in Identity Europa. There is this conception in popular culture that neo-Nazis are all these kind of ignorant rednecks. Liberals love to make fun of Trump supporters and red state residents as barely literate knuckle-draggers. But when you really look at the membership of groups like Identity Europa or Patriot Front and, you know, going back, the German-American Bund and Christian Front and all these other kind of organizations, you know, that really isn't the case. Look at Maple. He was a smart guy. Harvard-educated, a gifted linguist, but weird, socially awkward, uh, kind of a contrarian. He was also a homosexual, um, which was obvious to some people that, you know, were, were mentioned in something like treason. But, you know, all of America at the time sort of had this don't ask, don't tell policy. You know, if, if you've ever, like, read anything by Tennessee Williams, you know, that whole, like, well, obviously this is a gay character, but we're not going to address it or talk about it directly in any kind of way. Um, you know, it was kind of a big part of a lot of that thing. And, you know, that was American life during the 1940s and 50s. And, you know, in certain places, you know, it's it's still that way. Um, it seems weird, though, that there would be a gay Nazi, right? Well, not exactly. Um, Ernst Rahm was probably the highest ranking gay Nazi in Germany, although he was killed during the Night of the Long Knives. Um, but not because he was gay, but because he was like a threat to Hitler. I mean, maybe because he was gay, I guess, but you know, it's complicated. Um, but the whole idea of like gay Nazis wasn't exactly unheard of. Um, and after World War II, you see a lot of like weird gay dude Nazi fetishization. Um, Particularly, you know, if you look at like the work of filmmaker Kenneth Anger, um, there's a lot of like gay Nazi stuff going on there. Um, and it's still a thing today. You've got, um, you know, gay fascists like Jack Donovan. Um, and there were apparently a lot of gay dudes in Identity Europa when it was a thing. Um, I know I came across at least one of them. Um, and there was like a weird flap about Nick Fuentes and his weird obsession with cat boys. Um, so there is like this weird connection between, I guess, kind of closeted self-hating gay dudes and fascism. And, and to be honest, like, I'm not one to talk. I did join the army in an attempt to not be trans. So on a certain level, I can kind of understand, um, you know, especially if you look at like fascism and its rhetoric, you know, especially like in Nazi Germany, all the, the talk of like the Ubermensch and the kind of military trappings, the, the uniforms and the fashy haircuts. Um, Son's book even mentions the way guys in the 620th would copy the German POW's haircuts, um, which was basically like the, the Richard Spencer haircut. Um, so, you know, if you look at Dale Maple, he is very much a guy who reminds me of Richard Spencer, you know, Patrick Casey, Nick Fuentes, Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk, all those nerds of like the modern right. Um, here is son on how guys like Maple got kind of sucked into fascism. You know, I got into it basically because uh, the main characters in the in the story were all pretty smart guys and i um 
I had a hard time thinking, how do they fall for this stuff? And uh, so I, I, um, I went into all sorts of literature from the 30s, uh, you know, of course, newspapers, but also uh, scholarly papers and the like, and just to try to understand it. And, um, you know, I mean, there, there's one quote in the book from somebody, I don't remember who, I think it was one of the attorneys or something saying there were a lot of smart people during the war who thought, mm, you know, maybe it's a... Maybe it's a uh, an interesting way to organize, a helpful way to organize a country. Um, Maple was an educated guy, but he was one of those guys who thought himself smarter than everyone around him. Being stuck in the military in this crappy unit as a PFC was grating and galling for a guy like Maple. And I imagine, you know, he kind of felt a compulsion to do something about his situation. Maple and other members of the 620th formed a kind of like Nazi clique uh, among, you know, with the other misfits and Nazi sympathizers uh, at Camp Hale. And they actually started organizing and planning a kind of Nazi resistance. They met with soldiers who were former Bund members from other engineer service units at Camp Carson, which is now Fort Carson here in Colorado Springs. And they tried to lay the groundwork for a Nazi guerrilla war against the U.S., even though members of the 620th were meeting with other Nazis, nothing really came of it. Uh, nobody was crazy enough to go along with Maple and his weird plan. So, on February 5th, 1944, Maple decided to act on his own. He left Camp Hale in a recently purchased car he kept secret from the chain of command and took with him two German POWs. They headed south to Mexico. Their car died before they got to the border, but they crossed on foot and were eventually picked up by Mexican customs officials, who then turned them over to U.S. authorities. And three times made sergeant well, I'm not that kind of man I'm pretty much just as quick as I could I get Bust back to private again Cause taking orders never suited me And giving them out was much worse I could not stand to get my friends killed So I took care of myself first Now I know that don't sound right Don't think too bad of me Now it keeps me up nights What I could have done differently not only did Maple desert the military during wartime, but he took two German POWs with him. The military is a weird place with its own code of laws, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is different from the civilian legal system. In the military, you can be charged for just about anything as a violation of UCMJ. But in terms of things you can do that have very serious consequences, deserting during wartime with enemy prisoners of war is definitely up there. 
Maple was originally jailed in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and charged with treason. Uh, the army, though, convened a court-martial and charged Maple instead under the 81st Article of War for relieving, corresponding with, or aiding the enemy, which was the closest equivalent charge of treason. I was reading the book uh, Something Like Treason during the Signs v. Kessler trial, which, for those of you who don't know, is the Unite the Right trial, you know, the Charlottesville um, protest in 2017. Um, and that trial had, you know, Richard Spencer and Chris Cantwell, the crying Nazi, and other Nazis face this civil trial for the violence at that Unite the Right rally. Um, the best part of the whole trial, like at least, I mean, it was a big win for a a lot of reasons, but one of the things that I found really um, humorous about it was just watching Spencer and Cantwell make asses of themselves in front of the judge, um, kind of representing themselves. It would probably be a shock to you to learn that during his court-martial for treason, Maple basically did the same thing, ignoring his lawyers and representing himself. Um, and his story like changed dramatically like throughout the whole course of it. When he was caught by the FBI, he basically told them the whole story, his plan to go to German sabotage school and come back and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but then at the court-martial, he pleaded innocent and he claimed that it was all just like just a joke guys I'm, I'm not really a nazi i'm just joking uh all i wanted to do was um kind of raise awareness about the existence of these punishment units which had been established um here is son kind of um reflecting on uh you know maple's story here you know i have an impulse initially to write this as a uh, a comedy <laughs> because uh, you know some of the things are just some of some of their actions were so absurd, you know. And I never really, you know, and I didn't do that, but but I never really got beyond uh, thinking. Not be, I I couldn't take them too seriously. I just you know uh, they, they were just so absurd. So you know it wasn't really a balancing act for me. I mean I I, I was I was out to tell what happened. Um, you know regardless of my my feelings one way or the other. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. However, the Army Judge Advocate General recommended to President Roosevelt that his life be spared. Roosevelt commuted Maple's sentence to life imprisonment. After the war in 1946, the sentence was further reduced to 10 years. He was eventually released in February 1951. Maple and the other Nazi sympathizers in the 620th went on to have relatively normal lives once they got out of prison. After the war, it seems most people just wanted to forget. Here is Son discussing uh, the lasting impact of Maple's court-martial. I was thinking about, well, how long, how long does treason last? Um, you know, uh, I, yeah, I don't want to provide any spoilers for <laughs> no, you. No, go but, ahead, uh, it's fine. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, I, I can't tell, you know, the military undertook, right after World War II, the military undertook what I consider to be this really remarkable reform of its uh, of its judicial system, uh, attempting to move it uh, uh, less or more away from discipline 
uh, and more towards rehabilitation. And um, in the process of that, I, it, the philosophy behind that was is that, you know, um, crime looks a lot different in peacetime than it does in wartime. And we need to recalibrate our, um, our notion of crime during war to be applicable um, in peacetime. So um, that's how, that's basically how these guys all return to civilian life um, eventually. Um, but, you know, and then once that was done, you know, uh, as I say, their children didn't know anything about it. Uh, their employers, if they knew about it, didn't care. Um, uh, I just kind of wonder how, how much, how much of our, how much of treason is just forgive, forgetfulness, you know, as opposed to forgiveness. I don't think it's ever really forgiven, but, um, you know, um, Treason seems to have a fairly short life. Not to get too soapboxy, but it's hard not to see some modern parallels to this story, especially in the way the events of January 6th are being handled. Um, You know, just the... I guess turning a blind eye to, like, obvious crazy shit that should be addressed and not having the kind of political or, or, or judicial will, I guess, to follow through with that. Um, I mean, it is a little different. I mean, obviously, um, you know, in the sense that, like, it was treated very seriously, you know, while it was happening to Maple in the 1940s. But, you know, once the war was over, nobody really gave a shit. Go ahead and be a Nazi, like, whatever. Um, you know, and, and with January 6th, I mean, as soon as that took place. They were just like, oh, well, Antifa did it. And, and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even that bad. It was just people walking through the Capitol, like they were on a tour and, and, you know, no, it wasn't, it was just a spontaneous thing that wasn't organized at all by anyone in the government. So we should just stop investigating and not really think about it and just, you know, charge a couple of random MAGA types for punching a cop and, 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 and leave it at that. Um, so I did kind of ask, uh, San to, to weigh in on that and kind of think about the political parallels today. Um, so here is that response. I was thinking the same thing as I went through it. Um, you know, it, it's, so things don't really change. I mean, you know, the, uh, I, you know, the, the lesson I once took was that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it, but it echoes, it, it rhymes. Um, and, uh, you know, and we are, we're facing exactly the same kinds of disruptions and uh, ideological uh, confusions and social confusions, et cetera, et cetera, as we, as we were then. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of despairing, <laughs> you know, how, how do we get out of this, uh, this cycle? That's it for today. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Bill Son's Something Like Treason, and please do everything you can to resist the rising tide of fascism. Despite generally being weird, unlikable nerds, Nazis pose an existential threat to decent society. Don't let those chuds convince you they are simply intellectual dissidents or paleoconservatives or, or whatever line they're pushing. I've got to get going. 
I just got word that a bus full of Tibetans from Camp Hale is causing a ruckus at the Colorado Springs Airport. Catch you next time. Preacher said, boys, he was killed tonight. Down with lone paradise. One boy spoke up, said, preacher, tomorrow. Eat your supper with us. I'd be no guest at the table of the Lord. His food was not to be mine Cause I cursed his name Every chance that I could I recognize why I'm still alive Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or tell a friend or whatever it is you do with podcasts. Um, you can connect with us on Twitter at, at Western Fringe, W-S-T-R-N Fringe, or drop us a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com. This episode was brought to you by Odds and Ends Emporium, a woman-owned toy and gift shop located at the Ivy Wild School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Visit oddsandendsemporium.com to see their wide selection of unique toys and gifts. Until next time.